you know what? No more excuses. I will willingly choose God's fame above my own. I will stop acting as if I am the center of the world. I will look at my apathy straight in the face and demand that it leave. No more excuses. I will both admit my addictions and cry out to the healer. I will refuse to allow the enemy to continue stealing my joy. I will stop worrying about what everyone around me is thinking. No more excuses. I will turn my heart back again. I will listen hard to the whispers of his spirit, and I will proclaim the wonders of his never-ending love. No more excuses. No games. No pretending. No hiding. No dead religion. No more excuses. Period. All right, well, today is week two in our series, No More Excuses. Everywhere we look, every place we go, every conversation we hear is filled with excuses. They're there when we need them, and we reach for them far too often. Let's admit it. None of us want to hear that our excuses are explaining away laziness, self-doubt, and just giving up way too easy. Our excuses drives us to failure because they let us take the easy way out. During this series, we will be looking at six common excuses, their destructive patterns, and the best defense in erasing these excuses. The six excuses are, I can't forgive them. I can't give more. I can't tell that. I can't change now. I can't commit to one more thing, and I can't ask God for that. Over this series, our main point will be, and you can write this down, Brian's handing out little pieces, uh, notes, taking paper, stuff, and pens, and for you to write this down, remember, our main point will be the best defense against excuses is an offensive line of wise. The best defense against excuses is an offensive line of wise. Why? Why can't I choose to forgive even if they don't deserve it? Why am I more concerned about what others think than what God thinks? Why is that activity more important than this activity? Why do I feel my needs are more important than other people's needs? Why haven't I changed? Why can't I trust God to ask him for this? Kevin, can you turn this microphone down just a little bit? When we develop solid answers to these why questions, it will be the greatest defense to erasing our excuses. When we develop solid answers to these why questions, it will be the greatest defense to erasing our excuses. Last week, we answered three why questions 
associated with the excuse of unforgiveness. They were, why are you choosing not to forgive them? Why are you waiting to forgive them? And why is it so important to forgive? Now, if you missed last week, I, I ask, I beseech you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, get a copy of that. If you're listening online, click on last week, listen to it. If, if you don't have online privileges, then Fred has always been so helpful in videotaping all these messages, and you can always grab a DVD copy. Um, there's no cost to them. We'll make as many copies as we need. But get that. Unforgiveness is a huge part of our lives today. Seems like we are easily offended as a nation, as a people. And I don't know if, what it is about us that we can't just let go. We feel like there's got to be Like, I deserve something. Like, if you offended me, you owe me. And that's, that lesson that we talked on last week of unforgiveness will help you to let go of that. We discussed that there, in order to forgive future offenses, in order to let go of past offenses, there were two things that we need to change. The first one is we have to believe that God is in control of all our life, not just the good things but even the bad things, that God is in control. When we truly believe God is orchestrating all of our life's events, not just the good ones, good ones, we can respond with forgiveness easier. Remember we talked about Joseph and his brothers and, and all the stuff he went through. But when he finally came face to face with his brothers, years later, he told them three times just in the one little conversation, it wasn't you that brought me here. It was by God's hands that I'm here. So it was easier for him to forgive them because he knew it wasn't them. God's in control. God's in control. The second thing is you have to take them out from under your thumb and place them in God's hands. Placing individuals who have hurt you into God's hands, that's the secret of the Christian life and the secret of how to let go of unforgiveness. Trusting God will extend forgiveness to us when we extend forgiveness to others. Then, depending on him, to give us the strength we need to let go. It's the only way we can truly forgive. So we're going to dig right into this week. This week's excuse is, I can't give more. All right, let me ask you, how many people just thought of money when I said that? I can't give more. Mm -hmm. Why is it that whenever you mention giving, money is the first thing you think of? I don't know. As a matter of fact, if you're one that's not too giving, it feels like your wallet even tightens up when somebody talks about giving. But giving is more than just money, and that's what I want us to focus on today. Giving is a heart condition. It's a lifestyle. If you have a generous heart, you'll give more than just your money. You'll give compassion. You'll give mercy. You'll give kindness. You'll give your time. You'll give your energy. You'll give all of your resource, resources. It's not 
just your money. But if you're a greedy person, you'll want to hold tightly to not just your money, but you'll be stingy with your time, you'll be stingy with your mercy, with giving compassion, you'll hoard your resources, not just your money, because it's a heart condition. Giving is a principle of stewardship. We must remember that everything we have belongs to the Lord so that what we do possess is not our own, but what God has entrusted to us. We have no rightful ownership of our possessions, only a steward's trust. Think of it like this. How many of you have money in the bank? Everybody does. Even Jacob sitting over here. Everybody has money in the bank. And at any time, you can call your bank and say, do this or that with my money, right? Yeah. What would you do if when you called up that bank and you said, do this or that with my money, the person on the other line said, no. I like your money. As a matter of fact, it's here in my house. I'm in control of it. What would you do to that banker? I'm coming to get my money. Right? Wouldn't you? You bet you would. I will come and withdraw every penny from there, and then I'm going to go tell everyone I know don't have anything to do with that bank They're stingy, greedy, they don't understand stewardship. That was my money that they tried to hold on to. Come on. What about God? Everything you have, even the breath in your nostrils, belongs to God. At any time you want to be stingy, and try to hold on to it like it's yours, you possess it, He has the right to remove it from your possession because you don't own it. Oh, but Brenda, I worked for it. Who gave you the job? Again, I could back it all the way up to who lets your heart beat so you can work that job. You are a steward. We are a steward of everything we possess, quote, unquote, have in our care. It's a matter of stewardship. Giving is a heart condition. The Bible is full of scriptures on giving. It has more promises related to giving than to any other subject. For example, the subject of believing appears 272 times. Prayer 371 times, and love 714 times, while giving is mentioned 2,162 times. Jesus talked more about giving than anything else. More than half of his parables have to do with money and worldly goods. If giving is that important to God, I think it needs to be that important to us. 
So turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's dive into the ex this excuse, I can't give more. 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 8, there was this awesome prophet named Elijah. There was two prophets, Elijah and Elijah that the one came before the other. Elijah was the first prophet, mighty man of God, did miracle after miracle, listened to God, obeyed God. There was a time in his life here, we're seeing in 1 Kings 17, that God, and we pick it up in verse 8, then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zephyrath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to that place, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, Oh, and um, can you bring me a bite of bread, too? A bite of bread, too? Verse 12, But she turned around and said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Verse 15. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. Verse 16, there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised. Father, help us to see, Lord, today what you're trying to speak to our hearts. Lord, that you are calling us to be a giving and a loving people. And if we give and we love out of a heart of loving and giving, Lord, that you'll continue to multiply that back upon us. Lord, as we give, Lord, we get. And as we, we get from you, Lord, we can give it to others. God, we just pray right now that you continue to do that in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name. Verse 9 says, God said, I have instructed a widow to feed you there. This was the widow. So when the widow came up to Elijah, or Elijah up to the widow, whatever it was, and he said, hey, can you go get me a drink of water? She's thinking, yeah, water, okay. And then he called to her as she was leaving. Oh, by the way, bring me just a bite of bread. Now the scripture says that the Lord had already instructed her to feed this prophet. So you know that she... Probably. Now, I, I'm assuming here that she had this argument with God. 
When God was speaking to her in her house, and she's looking at this handful of flour and this little bit of oil that, you know, and she was probably complaining to God, this is all we have, and we've served you all our lives, and here we are always scraping together. Let, right? And God says, I'm going to bring a prophet. I need you to feed this prophet. Can you just hear, what? I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give. How can I give? She's probably excuses after excuses of why she can't give, right? I have nothing to give. There's not enough. If I give to this so-called prophet that's coming, what are we supposed to eat? Right? So when the prophet called out to her and said, hey, give me a bite, you know that came right to her mind that God already told her she was going to be feeding this prophet. So then she has to go into the explanation again. I don't have enough to give to you. Isn't that our excuse? When we start feeling the little poke or the little tug of the Holy Spirit to give this or give that or do this or do that, we have a hundred excuses why we can't. I don't have enough. I can't do that. There won't be enough left for me. Haven't we all argued this same thing? But the truth is she did have enough. He asked for a bite. He didn't ask for a full cake. He didn't ask for days worth of cake. He asked for a bite. She had enough. The problem wasn't that she didn't have enough. The problem is she didn't trust God with what she had. Heart issue. She didn't trust that God would provide more if she gave that away. So let's look at some of these why questions associated with giving. One, why would God ask me to give when I have nothing to give? Wasn't that her excuse? Why? It can't be God. That, I mean, I have explained a lot of things away. Must have been the pizza I ate last night. This could not be God telling me to do this. God could not be calling me to go over and help so-and-so mow their lawn. That can't be God, because every once in a while I see somebody else over there mowing, so that's not God telling me to do that. And I don't have a lawnmower anyway. I can't do that. Why would God ask me to give when I have nothing to give? We all have something to give. The widow didn't think she had anything to give, yet God asked her to feed Elijah, and Elijah asked for a bite. She had something to give. Think about when God called Moses to go lead his people out of slavery. Moses didn't believe that he could lead anything but a few sheep. And what did God say? What's in your hand? He had something God could use. And what about when Jesus asked his disciples on two different occasions to feed the multitudes? And they looked around and said, we have nothing to give. Don't ask us to give. We have nothing to give. He said, look around. You have something. Might only be two fish. Might only be just a little loaf of bread. Might only be a boy's lunch. But you have something to give. In Acts chapter 3, in verses 1 through 6, we see here a, 
something that happened in the life of Peter and John that I just want us to cover right now. Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us! The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus of Nazarene, get up and walk. We all have something to give. God's not asking you to give something you don't have. He would never ask you to give something you don't have. But you need to stop looking at things with our physical eyes. And with that, I own it. Greedy heart. It's mine. I have nothing. I, I have nothing. I have nothing to give. That's a look around. We all have something to give. Why question number two? Why should I give what I might need? Really, that, I mean, that had to do with the, the widow, too. Why would she want to give what she needed? But why do we think our needs are more important than other people's needs? When we do that, isn't that just being selfish? James chapter 2 went into explaining the difference between, or the correlation, not the difference, the correlation with faith and actions. You can't say you have faith. You can't say you trust God when he asks you to take care of somebody, to give food, provision, water, clothing, and you don't do it. They have to go together. It's a giving lifestyle. It's in everything we do, and it partners with our faith. You see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Why should I give what I might need? That's just a selfish question. If we truly believe God will take care of our needs, we can let go of holding on to what we think we might need someday. And if God asks for it, here it is. It's yours. Andy Stanley gave a great definition of greed, and he calls this the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption. He says, whether you're a spender or a saver, both are founded in greed. Whether you're a spender or a saver, both are founded in greed. Greed is the assumption 
that everything is for my consumption. You need to write that one down. Greed is the assumption that everything is for my consumption. I can't give that. I might need that. Whether you're a saver or a spender, they're both founded in greed. And giving is the only way to starve that greedy heart. Giving is the only way to starve greed. Think about it. The Dead Sea is called this Dead Sea. Why? Because it's always taking in, but it's never giving out. It's the Dead Sea. We make a living by what we get. We leave a legacy by what we give. We make a living by what we get. We leave a legacy by what we give. People won't remember how much you made an hour. People won't remember how much you stocked away in your 401, what you stocked away in your savings. When people are reading your eulogy, they won't ever mention, ever mention how much you were a saver and save this and save that. But they will discuss and they will remember what you gave. Were you a giving person? Were you a loving person? It, it would be a sad funeral if they spoke on how much you saved and hoarded and kept for yourself. But a happy funeral, a happy life for the giving person. You never have to worry. You can't ever outgive God. The question, why should I give what I might need? Do you believe God? Where's your faith? Do you believe you can trust God? Where's your faith? And put it in your actions. If you want to, and we need to, continue to check our heart all the time. Am I allowing my heart to become greedy? and starting to hold on to the resources, give. Oh, you'll check right away. Do you give out a cheerful heart, give? Or is it, oh, oh, here, here. I have a 10 and I have a 1 in my wallet, and I see that person, and I know God's telling me to give them some money, and I grab for the 1. Check your heart. Continue to balance your human desire to hoard. By giving. Here's a simple principle. If God asks for it, he'll provide for it. God will not ask you to give something you don't have or that you will need later and not have. If God asks for it, he'll provide for it. Question number three, why should I give to them? Come on, we've all done it. I have been so guilty of this because I was these people. Con artists. Knocking on the church doors or going up to the elderly couple in the grocery store and lying through my teeth to get another $20 to go last me a weekend to do whatever I wanted to do. So why should I give to them? 
What if they are lying? What are they going to do with what you're giving them? And again, not just money, any kind of resources, whatever. But Jesus never gave us a list of qualifications for those we can give to. He didn't say, only give to them if they are this way. Check, 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 check. Only take care of them if they're doing this. Check, 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 check. There's nowhere. I searched the Bible back and forth. There's no qualifying list of good recipients to give to. The only thing is, if God tells you to do it, do it. Our responsibility is to listen and obey, period. Think about the scripture we read earlier. Peter and John must have passed that beggar a hundred times. They didn't just go to church once a week. It was two, three times a day, back and forth, back and forth. They must have passed that beggar a hundred times or more. But this one day, God said, stop. Because you know the beggar probably saw them a hundred times and asked them a hundred times or more, money, 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 however he was begging money, money, money. But this one day, God told Peter and John, stop. Verse 4 says, Peter and John looked at him intently. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm a picture person, so when I'm reading the Bible or reading anything, I, I'm drawing pictures in my mind. And, see, and I could actually see Peter and John walking by this beggar like they've done a hundred times, probably small chatting and, hey, you know, where are we going to sit when we get there? Hope nobody's sitting in my seat. No, they didn't say that. But walking by this beggar and then God's saying, stop. In verse 4, when it says that they looked intently at the beggar, they didn't say how long they were looking. I can only imagine that, what if they stood there five minutes, ten minutes? just looking at him, thinking, I am not giving him a penny. Lord, I don't have a penny, but I'm not giving him anything. He sits there all the Could you just hear this argument? I mean, I can. I can hear this going on where they're just looking at him, thinking, you're just still You haven't even tried to move. You're just sitting there. But they were listening for God. Okay, God, here, we've stopped. What do you want us to do? We're looking at him. He wants money. We don't have any money. God says, but you have something. Give them what I gave you. You're steward of what I gave you. Now give it to him. So on this day, they looked back at him and said, you know what, you want money. We don't have money, but what we have, we'll give to you. Again, stop arguing with God's directing. But God, if I... Give to that person or this or that. You know what they're going to do with it. Yes, he does. You don't. I don't. Stop assuming you know. You don't know. I don't know. If we are being directed by God, listening to God, I believe we can trust. God knows what that person will do with what he is asking us to give them. Again, it's not yours. You're a steward. We're stewards of everything God's given us. So when God says, hey, I want you to go do this, or I want you to go give this or that, 
Don't sit there and argue with God like I have before. So I'm just, you know, I'm not saying I've never done this. I've done this. We're all working through this message together. Stop arguing with him. Stop assuming you know that what they're, they're not going to use it. Well, they don't care. Why should I give them that? And if I had the 10 and the 1 in my wallet, I know what they're going to do with it. So why waste the $10? I worked hard for that. I'll give them the $1. Let somebody else. I've said that before. Let somebody else give them. God didn't ask somebody else. If you hear God speaking to you, guess what? He's speaking to you. He's calling upon his possessions to be used how he wills. You can trust that God knows what he's going to do with what he's asking you to give. Remember, giving is not just about money. It's having a generous heart. Giving what you have when God asks for it. I like this scripture, Matthew 25, 29. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Matthew 25, 29. So today's excuse, I can't give more, it's a heart issue. The difference between a greedy heart and a generous heart. Remember, our main point, the best defense against excuses is an offensive line of whys. We need to allow God to change our greedy heart into a giving heart, a generous lifestyle. We need to remember the answers to these why questions. We all have something to give. If God asks for it, he'll provide for it. And we can trust God knows what to do with what he has asked us to give. There's no three-point step to follow. Just one. Start giving. Craig Rochelle shared his testimony of being a very stingy, he even called himself, he was a very greedy man. He did not like giving. He hated going to church at first. He said, all those pastors wanted was my money. Every time he turned around, they wanted this, wanted that, wanted this, wanted that. Every offering wanted this. They want more of this. They want more of that. Even as a pastor, he said, I struggled continuously with greed in my life. He goes, and I didn't call it greed. I called it saving. He was a saver, he said. He said, I don't even like, he didn't even like being called a penny pincher. He was a saver, and that was a good thing. <laughs> Remember we read early, Andy Stanley said that saving and spending are both founded in greed. So Craig Rochelle went to one of his respected leaders and said, please help me overcome. I know, I know God's pointing my, that one spot in my heart, telling me I need to get rid of this greedy heart. How can I be a giving person, and this respected leader looked at him and said, just keep giving until you like it. He's like, what? No big in-depth discussion on what I need to do. He Just give until you like it. 
because it's giving that will starve the greedy heart. Once that's starved, it will die. And you will be a giving, generous person. There's only one way to get that generous, giving heart. Giving. Start giving. Start giving. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. What? A good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you have to take the jaws of life to pry open your wallet or your house, your resources, your a kind heart, your merciful heart, or your, you know, whatever it is, whatever area, with the measure you use, and you scoop out a little teaspoon of kindness you'll give out once in a while, it will be measured back to you. Not just about money, remember. If you need kindness in your life, be kind. If you need forgiveness in your life, be forgiving. If you need mercy, sow mercy. But with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If we lived our whole life just on that one principle, we'd be living the whole Bible. I'm talking about if we really wanted, because don't we, don't we always expect more? Well, they're not nice to me. Why should I be nice to them? It's a teaspoon. Or an eyedropper. Maybe it's not even a teaspoon. Maybe it's like an eyedropper. Mm, there. That's all you get. That's all you'll get. That's all you give. That's all you'll get. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Stop holding on to what doesn't even belong to you. Now, if that comment bothered you, you have a greedy heart. If when somebody mentions that it's all God's, you're just a steward, and that bugs you, you don't want to admit that it bugs you, it's a greedy heart. You need to dig that heart out, starve that heart by giving. Starve that greed out. You need to keep all your resources open to God's disposal to use as he sees fit. Remember, we read it earlier, Matthew 25, 29, to those who use well what they are given. Even more will be given, and they will have an abundance, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Let me assure you, if that widow at the, the story that we read earlier after she argued with the prophet, I don't have enough, I'm not giving you anything, would have walked away and not even given him a bite. She would have baked that last cake, ate it, and died. Period. End of story. But she's remembered in the Bible because despite her objections, there was something in her that said, I will. 
God, I'm just a steward. You're right. That little handful of flour, that's yours, God. It's a little bit of oil, that's yours. Our lives, it's yours, God. So if we're going to bake this last cake and give some to the prophet and we're all going to eat and die, at least we did what you said. But for those who do nothing, even the little that they have will be taken away. Martin Luther said it best. He said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. God has your best interest in mind, your eternal rewards written down, ready and recorded. This earthly everything we see is temporary. Stop making a kingdom out of this molehill. This is nothing. Stop trying, trying to acquire what's going to burn up, be consumed, and have no lasting value. Everything God asks you to give is for eternal purposes. When you hold on to it, it's for temporary gain. How can that even compare? But giving is a matter of the heart. So have you been guilty of holding on to what you are only a steward of? Have you been stingy with your compassion and mercy for others? Do you demand giving? Mercy, kindness, respect, etc. from others. Yet, you pick and choose who and when you'll be giving, loving, kind, merciful to. God is calling us to be his representatives to a broken and lost world. Are you representing his giving and his loving nature well? you do realize that people's first experience of God's love is by people. So if the church can't give it, where are they supposed to find it? I want us to spend the last few minutes here at the altar um, I got a visit yesterday by a missionary friend of mine who I haven't seen for years. I was in my office in the house working on the message for today. Uh, this last week, since the last message we did, I've been spanked by God that we didn't have an altar call at the end. I don't know why. And the message prayed left and God continually spoke to me every day over the last week what did you do why did you do that when he speaks a word this is these are not my I, it comes out of my you know little face but it's God's words and I, I make sure I do all I can to stay on my knees before God that I get his words because if you were just here for if I was just here for my words I wouldn't stay I want God's words. Well, there's a part two to receiving a message. 
It's responding to the message. Not for the pastor or whoever's speaking that day. It's between you and God. God, I've heard what you're saying to me. Now what are you going to do with it? If you just pack up your stuff and walk out the door, you'll forget it. There's a confirmation that goes on when you come up and seal the message. Lord, I've heard the message, what you're speaking to me. And you know, you could be sitting there today. I spoke on giving, and God's still speaking to you about unforgiveness from last week. Maybe you weren't even here last week. You just heard me mention unforgiveness, and you're, God's been speaking to you this whole message time, pointing out a specific situation, individual, and says, it's time, it's time, it's time. You need to deal with that. You won't deal with it if you just get up and walk out the doors. Now's the time. So when you respond to the altar, I think everyone needs to respond to every word we hear, every message. I do. I was just talking to Kevin before service, saying I need you when we have altar call at the ends to come up and help me pray with people. But I said, don't neglect. We need prayer first. Because I don't know about you, when you're speaking a message or you're up here, but for me, I feel like I'm getting, you know, poked at, prodded at, and God's dealing with me, and I'm trying to keep uh, on the same point and, and be able to communicate clearly while a thousand thoughts are running through my head and things are, he's pointing out in my heart about, oh, you need to get that right, oh, you need to get that right. So when I do altar call, is isn't for me to feel like, yay, I got three people at the altar. That's not it at all. It's about us all, and we're all mature Christians in here today, to come up and confirm, okay, Lord, we heard what you were speaking today. Now what do you want me to do? That's being doers of the word and not just hearers. And I don't want to be a pastor of a church that just hears the word and then gets up and leaves and waits for next Sunday. I want us to be a church of doers. We're doers of God's word. So let's do that. I asked Kevin to put some music on so he can come up here with us as well and just take time. Again, this is a small family right now that's gathered together. You can snot and cry and blubber in here and feel the most comfortable in here than any other place. No judging, no condemning, no Secret whisper and wonder what they're up at the altar for. To talk to God. That's all. Same thing you need to get up here for. To talk to God. So let's do that. Go ahead and start that music. And let's all come up to the altar. And just allow God to speak to you.